Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Strange and Beautiful Book Club Deep Cuts. Dune Edition. <laughs> We've discovered buttons. Um, yeah, it's time for us to discuss. We just spent three episodes talking about Dune, the book. And now we're going to talk about the failed epic attempt to adapt the book. If one could generously call it an attempt to it's, adapt the book. It's a trippy adventure. Yeah, a trippy <laughs> adventure the story. Attempt to also make named a book. Dune. <laughs> hey, hey, it had the same some of the same words were in both. That's true. The and is of an. Those were all in the same book. Yeah. It, yeah. Frank Herbert, the name Frank Herbert was in both. Yeah. Because the movie said inspired by Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. Loosely uh, adjacent to. <laughs> and that, that epic that we are talking about, of course, is Jodorowsky's Dune. But before we get started, hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Deep Cut. Dune Edition. What we're talking about, I just said, obviously, is Jodorowsky's Dune. And so this was the first real attempt to adapt Dune. And notably, it's like 10 years after the movie came out, after the book came out. It's like mid-70s. And Alejandro Jodorowsky, the Chilean-born fellow of... Uh, Jewish-Ukrainian descent. Yeah. Um, decided he was going to adapt... Uh, something because he just made a movie called the holy mountain and he really felt like the next logical step was to make another movie based on a book and he was like i could have said any book but i said dune i had never read dune but somebody i knew had read dune and they He'd said heard they good liked things it. about it i heard good things and so he got the rights for a song and then decided he kind of sort of didn't really feel like he needed to stay in any way true to the source material. I mean, there are characters who have the same name, so that's good. Um, but ultimately, I think what this movie was about was about him making a work of art that he felt would inspire people spiritually, which is possibly the most 70s reason for making a movie possible. And I loved that he said, you know the the hallucinations that you get when you take LSD. Yeah. I wanted him to make a movie that would make people see the hallucinations without having to take the LSD. I mean, it's a book about a drug, a specific drug, a drug that everyone in the universe is addicted to. So that expands consciousness. I mean, fair, fair. It expands consciousness. It extends life. It creates an altered state of being, often a physically altered state of being, if you take it for long enough. So as a metaphor for LSD, I think he was really staying true to probably what was Frank Herbert's, Herbert's initial inspiration, which was the idea of like, can a drug be so influential in a culture that it literally drives society? So, yeah, I mean, that's fair. And we watched the documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune. And I think our real takeaway from that is we need to have an entire deep cut on Alejandro Jodorowsky. Absolutely. We're going to. Yeah. Because uh, at the end of it, we were like, I need to know more about this man. And I need to consume everything that he has ever created. Because I guarantee you, he was passionate about 
everything everything he put his name on. Right. The the whole vibe that, <clears throat> the whole vibe that we got from Jodorowsky cuz he's he's still alive now. Yeah. He's like 94. Right. Uh he's still just making shit all the time. He's just making shit. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about how much we love seeing things that are created by somebody who has a very clear artistic vision and they execute on that uncompromisingly yeah in a in a way that's trying to encourage everybody to just do their best right to make the best new amazing novel innovative thing right and everything that we have everything that we love about those kinds of movies he represents we, we get those vibes yeah. from him i was thinking about what's a good metaphor for this because we talk about this a lot the fact that um there is a tangible difference between a movie that is created because the people that made it felt like it needed to be said felt like they needed to create it and the type of movie that is created to make money and so i was trying to think of what's a good you know what's a good difference between like how, how can i describe this and i was thinking it's really the difference between a bespoke suit and fast fashion so if I go to a tailor and I have a suit made, handmade for me, I can wear that suit for the rest of my life. And even if it's out of fashion, it's still going to look good because it is the best example of what is available to be created in the time when it was created. And all of the little details, yes. the quality of construction are so carefully done yeah that it lasts because the importance it keeps getting used yeah, the importance of the hand of the craftsman in the creation cannot be undersold and then you have fast fashion which is literally designed to be consumed and discarded and i think that's what you get from a lot of movies today is you get these movies that are intended to be seen you're going to spend your ticket money on them you're going to buy a box of popcorn. You're going to watch it. You're going to walk out. You're going to talk about it for a little while. And then you're probably not going to revisit it. Rewatch value zero. Right. I think we talked about that with Eric the last time he was on the podcast for Near Dark, which is, you know, he said he can remember getting movies and watching them over and over and over and over and over again and really feeling an attraction to the movie and wanting to watch it over and over and over again. And then a lot of movies today, you watch it and you're like, well, okay, you know, I don't really need to, I don't need to watch that again. Here's you know? an example from my life history. I have watched the new Transformers movies. I've probably only watched about half of them. Yeah. I think there's like five or six. Or more. I've watched or yeah. more. I think I've watched three of them. Yeah. Whereas the 1980s cartoon Transformers movie, I have watched two to 300 times <laughs> at least. And you got the touch. I will watch it again yeah. at any moment. Ironically, it's Prime Day. Happy Prime Day. I believe we have all forgotten Don't, the reason for the season. Don't he died forget for us. the sacrifice the of Prime Optimus Prime. Us. Yes. Yeah. What does he say about the till all are one? Till, till all, all are, are one. one. <laughs> um, I think that's really what our takeaway from this documentary was, is here was a man who had a passionate idea. And I loved the way he described putting together the team of people that were going to work on warriors. it. His warriors. He went out, he spent months yeah. just out and about pursuing people, vetting them, and recruiting them yeah. to be on his team of warriors yes. to make this project. Right. And I think one of the, the things that I kept thinking about was, you know, there's one of the hallmarks of the autistic personality is no one is above you. No one is 
No one is, um, how can I phrase this? So it's like you see everyone as your equal. And there may be people who have the authority to, um, you know, like they may be your boss and you listen to them like you're like they are your boss. But as soon as they lose your respect, you're no you're no longer interested in treating them like a boss. You don't feel that there is an intrinsic value to somebody that is greater than your intrinsic value. Just because of their title. Just because of their title. And I think that um, Jodorowsky might have a little bit of that because it was basically like, well, who do I want to do my special effects? Well, that guy who did that one movie was great. The that whole uh, what was it called? Um, Two thousand one, a space, space odyssey. odyssey. Yeah, um, I think I'm gonna go get him. And so he just showed up to get this guy, and he ended up not liking him. He was like, "No, he he's not passionate. He's not a warrior. He is not a spiritual warrior. He's just doing this for like the technical value of doing a thing. He's not doing it because he's passionate about it." And he left. And then he saw Dark Star. We have got to do wow. Dark Star. Yeah. I am not sure. He must have been on something if he watched Dark Star and was like, that's my man. Is that not the one where the guy, the it's a beach ball with plastic feet is the alien? Yeah, they, they pick it up and yeah. they kind of adopt it. It becomes the ship's pet. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's a funny movie. That's the one where the guy surfs. Oh, that's a, maybe a spoiler alert. I don't know. But it's from the 70s. So sorry. Go watch it. But the guy ends up surfing out of like the spaceship Like surfboarding yeah. down into the atmosphere into uh, re-entry. What a fucking wild movie. Maybe we need to do that next just for fun, for funsies. Because that movie is, um, it's a trip. And he yeah. was basically like, the only reason anyone would make a movie like that is because they were passionate about it. And if they're passionate about it, they are my fucking people. And he went and found him, Dan O'Bannon, who is the, he was the special effects director for Dark Star. And so he went and found him and he was like, come to Paris, sell everything you own. We're making a fucking movie. And there must be something about him. I bet you good money that Alejandro Jodorowsky is fucking intense in person. I bet oh, you that yeah. man does not have a light conversation to save his life. But okay, so in the documentary he was describing he describes recruiting his warriors and then he starts recruiting the cast to play his characters. And he wants the same thing. Yeah. He wants passionate artists. Right. To cooperate with him on this endeavor. Yeah. And he talks about wanting Mick Jagger for, to play Fade Rautha. Yeah. And he said he happened to be at a party. Probably word had spread to Mick Jagger. Yeah. Uh, and he saw Mick Jagger from across the room and Mick Jagger saw him. And then Mick Jagger just walked straight to him. And from Mick Jagger's perspective, it was probably like, oh, nobody has even told me what this guy looks like the guy that wants me to play yeah. his character but i can tell that's him right there right i he's can got see the, the look, fire in his the eyes fire. yes yeah. he does have a he does have a fire he definitely does and he didn't just re, he didn't just hire film people he hired actual artists he hired moebius as he calls him um jean Giraud, who is a comic book artist very famous comic book artist and he brought him on to do all the storyboarding because he was like the only way i'm gonna sell this is if i plan this entire movie shot for shot so he created what was basically a comic storyboard for the movie in advance so like before in advance. before anything else and then he was like okay i need He's like somebody. this guy is a genius a genius i would i would just explain what's happening and yeah. He would draw it and then we boom go to the next scene. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell it was like they show you storyboard images in the documentary and it's 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 pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. I'm sad there's only a few of these books available for people to get. Cause he also hired um Foss. And Foss is like a famous like science fiction cover artist. If you have seen one of those 
old 1970s science fiction covers where they have this amazingly detailed, totally off the wall spaceship on the cover. That's probably Foss. And just to like throw some icing on the cake, he was like, hey, let's get Giger. Oh, you guys know, you know Giger, right? There's a little movie he, he worked on. It was called, um, oh, what was it called? Uh, Aliens. But of course, he hasn't worked on that yet. This is the 70s. And I want us all to put on some context lenses for a second. I feel like that's super important right now. The one of the only major um, serious, let's call it serious, but with a grain of salt, serious science fiction movies that had come out at this point was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Other than that, science fiction is a throwaway. You've got Star Trek, which is a television show. It doesn't run very long. Uh, we've made, we might have made the first Star Trek movie which thematically is different from all other Star Trek movies because they were really trying to be 2001 A Space Odyssey instead of trying to be Star Trek. And we remedy that from two onward, but the first one is pretty boring. Um, we don't have science fiction as the epic playground for culture in the way that, culture. In the way that yeah. we're going to get it. In the way that Star Trek, Star Wars is going to make it in 1977. We're not there yet. And here is this guy trying to create a epic cultural exploration in a sci-fi setting. When previously, seriously, 2001 A Space Odyssey is as far out as it gets. And that is... Several very stunning special effects shots, some classical music, there's a bit with some apes, and then there's just wild screeching to colors for 45 minutes. <laughs> and then the best five minutes of the movie, which is the guy in the room, and then Space Baby. And you're, you're asking people to go from that to this Jodorowsky's Dune. It's like, I watched a documentary about... Um, about Wally, the Pixar movie Wally, and they said they had to have the entire movie nailed down tight because they were about to pitch a movie where there was no dialogue for 45 minutes. The first 45 the minutes. The first 45 minutes. Like, Castaway is probably the only other movie I can think of where you have zero dialogue for just a huge chunk of the movie. Right. But at least you get like human interaction, stuff happens, and then poof, Yeah. The island. The island. Not but so they here. sold Wally. Yeah. And that's what I think that is what Jodorowsky was trying to do is he was trying to have everything absolutely nailed down because he needed to sell it. And he really gathered a team of warriors. When, let's see, my first job out of school that I was actually doing like technical work, it was at a startup and it was a very stressful educational process. But the owner of the company had said he had a like five or six of us engineers together and he was like, I'm imagining like, a team putting together a team and that team properly constructed is a flashlight that you can shine on any problem yeah. and solve that problem. And right now we're doing this kind of stuff, but you know, we, we finish that and then we can pivot to pretty much anything. If you get, yeah. the, if the, you get right the right team, team together. together. Absolutely. And and then you just go wherever you want, wherever the opportunities take you. Yeah. And that's kind of what he's doing here. He's constructing this team. He's yeah. assembling. He's organically assembling this team piece by piece, finding the person that will fit to fill a need within the team. Right. And then, okay, now here's, culture fit. here's the gap for the next piece yeah. that I need to go find 
and Phil. I think my favorite one was about his son, Brontus, who he was like, you're going to be Paul. And then he put him in like martial arts training for two years. Seven days a week. How many hours a day? Yeah. Like six hours like a day. Like six hours a day for two years. Of physical, years. like martial training <laughs> for two years. Tell me your dad's intense. And then I'm going to tell you, well, at least he's not fucking Jodorowsky. Can you imagine and I think just there being was, like, sorry, There was son. a whole like educational curriculum alongside yeah. that. He was too, trying to turn him into Paul. Right. He wanted to make him into a like literal fighting machine. Yeah. A master of his body, but also a master of his mind. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I did like the part where we were talking about kind of who he was going to cast. And it's really interesting because he was almost hyper-focused on all the male characters. But then you think, well, there's really just a lot of male characters. So that makes sense. I mean, they're right. mostly, most. I mean, besides Jessica, really. There's Jessica and Chani. Yeah. Are the big female characters. But like he wanted Orson Welles. To be the count, uh, yeah. Baron. And he had Baron. to agree to have a chef on I loved how much he played to each person. Like Salvador Dali, he wanted to be the emperor. Okay, you can be the emperor, um, but he wanted to be the highest paid actor. And he was like, ever. And he was like, okay, well, maybe I can get his role down to like a minute. And then I'm going to pretend that the emperor made a robot copy of himself to protect himself. And then the robot will act out all the rest of his scenes. Perfect. Done. And then Mick Jagger was going to be in it, and David Carradine. Yes, David Carradine as, um, who was it, the Duke? Maybe the the Duke, Duke, but he wanted the Duke to be castrated. He had all these other really wild ideas, I think because he was trying to play up the mysticism. Yeah, he he was amplifying how mystical and mythological the story was right because dune itself is almost anti-mythological it's almost it's anti-white savior it's it's showing religion as a device of manipulation instead of as a uh, narrative device right and he was trying to eliminate that probably because he didn't even realize that that was part of it because again he never read the book and um really play it up because in the end of his dune paul was going to die and then paul was going to become part of everyone because everyone is a little bit because he had ascended or yeah because the savior himself the savior is in all of us and paul is the mahdi he's the savior so he gets to be uh, we are all paul right oh okay yeah i did like the um, androgynous character design for Fade Rautha. Yes. Yeah. So as we're speaking, the second trailer or the trailer for Dune Part Two has come out, and we get a glimpse at what we're going to get from the Harkonnen home planet from Gidi Prime, and Fade Rautha is like black and white. Yeah, very much like um, Stellan Starsguard's Baron Harkonnen, yeah. where he's. Very, like, black clothing, pale skin, right. like, bald, no hair yeah. anywhere. Fade Rautha is like that, except he's, the, like, the slim athletic version. Right. And this is an interesting choice. This is an interesting choice visually. It conveys a lot to the viewer in terms of the way the Harkonnens view life, view the universe as black and white, good and evil. Mm-hmm. We are... Our goals are absolute, and everything that opposes those goals is um, worth destroying in order to further our goals. Right. And we accept no compromises. It's about domination. Yeah, it's about clear delineation, black and white. And I think that the way that Jodorowsky had conceived of the universe was a far more nuanced approach where the Harkonnens were far more decadent. Um, I loved the way that Fade Rautha had um, was extremely androgynous. And I think what that gets us is a fluidity to the characters. Right. It, 
when a character is not like heavily you know, labeled yeah. as masculine or feminine, they have a wider spectrum to work in. Yeah. And I think it were, it would have worked really well for the Harkening characters in general. Right. Because they have this air, this almost affected air of decadent hedonistic indulgence. Yeah. But it's it's almost on purpose to hide this cultivated deceptive um persona. Yeah. That's that's really making the decisions about what they're trying to accomplish and then the the decadence is just to cover it up. Right. To put people off. I would love um, posters of all of Giger's sketches for the Harkonnen world. Oh, man. What a fucking amazing artist he is, was. He has passed, since passed. I would love to have been, like, I would love to have had a conversation with him. Because I wonder, I know I used to do a lot of artwork, um, actual artwork, um, not merchandise and shit. And... I know I don't seem super bubbly on the podcast, but I'm a fairly upbeat person. And all of my artwork was very, very dark. And I wonder if he was the kind of guy that when you met him, he was super chill and super cool. And then when he drew, it was all like skulls and dripping appendages and these off the wall, like mechanical and organic conceptions that sort of straddle this line of um, being both aesthetic and monstrous all at the same time. Yeah. And Jodorowsky said he plumbed the depths of the human soul, the the darkness. Yeah. The darkness of the human, of the human soul. soul. Yeah. It's pretty cool. You can see why he became the inspiration for so many different different things like alien right so we go through this like almost um you know biography of the the life cycle of this attempt at adapting dune yeah which some of the things that they talked about in like how do you make this remind me of um, I, I watched a documentary about, uh, see, it was the Met, um, like the Metropolitan Opera, did a performance of um, Das Ring der de Ring Das Nibelungen. Okay. Uh, Wagner's um, Wagner's opera. Yeah. Um, about the. The ring and the what it was like Gotterdammerung and yeah, whatever the Hilda and and yeah. the uh, where the the flight of the Valkyries comes from. Yes. And when he originally wrote it, the like stage directions were literally impossible to execute on a stage. Yeah. And so it's become this like stage piece that you kind of do just to see if you can pull something off. Yeah. It's like, okay, I've, I'm a really good, like, you know, stage director. Like I can pull off these plays like no problem. And all right, here's the impossible one. Yeah. Let's see if I can adapt this script into a play that I can actually perform on a stage and so this was a whole documentary about the i think it was called wagner's dream oh is that the one where they created the set and it was so fucking amazing and this the yeah it was and the it was these like triangular wedges stuff. yeah that all could rotate independently yeah and so you could create all this terrain by rotating everything um in different orientations and then they had projectors at different angles to to project basically the set yeah onto this thing it really cool mechanically and you end up doing a lot of really cool dynamic stuff yeah 
And so then like one of the really difficult things to adapt is at the end, they actually go walk on the rainbow bridge. Yeah. But because this set is actually just a bunch of triangles, they take the long shape and just turn it up. So it's a very steep ramp. And then the people are on ropes and then they're literally projecting like this moving rainbow effect and they actually have them walk up the stage. Yeah. The set, you know, to the top of the rainbow bridge. Nice. And anyway, so, but they talk a lot about how the whole like tradition of this play is understood to be impossible to perform live on a stage. Yeah. And I got similar vibes when people were like, how the fuck would you make this book into a movie? Right. Uh, How do you execute that? What do you focus on? Right. What do you choose? You have to, well, (laughs) what do you choose when you want to make this into a two hour movie? Right. But... If it's 14 hours What do you not have to cut when you make it a 12 to 20 hour movie? Which is ultimately the downfall of the movie. Right. His scope was too big. His scope was too big. And he wanted a 14 hour movie and he refused to compromise, which I really loved that part in the documentary when he was like, no, this was my dream. I had brought my dream to life. I had showed them what I wanted for my dream. I was not going to compromise on my dream. You don't compromise on dreams. Right. I would and rather like, not like make Rachel it. Like Rachel says, every once in a while when we really like hit on something good, she's like, the fucking audacity. Yeah, the audacity. To uh, like believe that you could pull this off. Yeah. And... He was like, do you not know who I am? I have made three movies, one of which a guy shits gold in. Okay? (laughs) Okay? I am Jodorowsky, motherfucker. You will make my 14-hour movie. And they were like, okay, so heard, but I'm not going to do it. I love the book. Great job. Definitely helps. The book, meaning the book that they compiled. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because he compiled an entire... Like, guide to how I'm going to make this fucking movie. Yes. Is basically what it was. And they were all like, so cool. Thanks for sharing. But going to have to hard pass. And ultimately, it just didn't get made. It fell through. He didn't get to make it. Um, Yeah. They got to the point where they were pitching it to the studios to get, what, $5 million of funding. Yeah. They they were not going to make a, like, 12 to 20 hour film. For $5 million. Well, anyway, maybe Jodorowsky could have figured it out. He, he wasn't going to pay his son. That he, was fine. <laughs> I totally sympathize with the, I'm 80% confident I can yeah, pull this he off. he was 80% confident, which was basically 150% confident. That's only 20% bullshitting. Well, he said he already had a fair amount of money. He just needed $5 million more. Oh, okay. I think in total gotcha. it was going to be $15 million, which in, in the mid-70s was pretty uh, high. Yeah. It was pretty high. Yeah. Um, I loved the part when he said that, uh, David Lynch made the movie. He found out that David Lynch was making the movie and he wasn't going to go see it. Yeah. He said, well, I David Lynch is part. a great, is a great artist. He's going to do a really good job. This is going to, I'm going to have to go watch the movie I wanted to make get made by somebody else. Somebody else was having his baby. And so yeah. he went to the movie to go see it. And he said he got happier and happier and happier because it was terrible. <laughs> this movie was shit (laughs) he goes that's not a bad that's not a good reaction but it's a very human reaction yeah i can see that yeah he beat him to the punch but he didn't he didn't do a good job and they show some of the special effect shots from dune which just feels unfair because they take them out of context as someone who has watched the 1980s dune a lot um it's okay i mean i I recognize it has flaws and we're going to talk about it when we get there but I just thought that that was hysterical. This movie was shit. He did a terrible job. Oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> I did like the part in the documentary where we talked about the influence. Yes. That, I think this was probably the most important yes. or the most 
impactful. That like Paul that, at the end of Jodorowsky's proposed movie, when Paul died, when the movie died, it didn't die. It became part of so many other things. Right. Because it was one giant thought experiment. It was a bunch of very, very smart very, very passionate people who all got together and did just a bunch of fucking deep work. And were expertly coordinated with yeah. just the right amount of f the right balance of freedom and guidance yeah. by Jodorowsky. And, it, and stylistically. Inspiration. It, I, I told, I mentioned the word provoking. Yeah. In the sense of he provoked like the best of their ability. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, stylistically speaking, it puts the pedal to the floor in terms of what we accomplish scientifically, like what we accomplish in science fiction. We don't get a lot of the imagery from Star Wars if we don't have Jodorowsky's Dune. We don't get the imagery in all of the alien movies if we don't have Jodorowsky's Dune. We don't get the... Literally. Zoom out through the entire galaxy... That we get in contact. Right, which Matt loves contact. We'll have to do that someday soon, yeah. too. But, you know, we know that Giger worked on aliens, but Giger worked on aliens because Dan O'Bannon right. works so the, on aliens. This is um, where the... He put together the, the A-team. The team that is a flashlight that you can shine on other problems. Yes. That's where I really thought this applied because Jodorowsky assembled this team and then... Members of this team would group together, go work on something else, and just blow it out of the water because they had all of this rapport built up and yeah. like cultivated by Jodorowsky. Yeah. And I think that's an amazing legacy, even if the movie itself doesn't get made. And I really sympathize with Jodorowsky saying... Oh, I tried to do this audacious thing. Yeah. And it failed. Because so fucking what? I fail all the time. <laughs> yeah. Here's yet another thing in the pile of my failures, and I'll just put it in the stack well, he says, next to my pile of accomplishments. He goes, no, no, it doesn't stop you. It redirects you. Right. He goes, okay, so I didn't get to make a movie. Well, then I'll make a comic book. So he took all of the ideas that he had injected into... Jodorowsky's Dune and created Lankel. And uh, the the Inkle yeah. penned throughout the 1980s, which has been described as having a claim to be the best comic book ever written. Right, because what you get is a mind who is dedicated not to a okay. particular goal. He's not trying to sell a product he is trying to create a piece of art and Which yes there is always a process so there is definitely something to be said for creating something for profit i'm not saying that you can't i've had this discussion before where i've talked about a lot of the artwork that you see on like instagram and some of the other more popular social media pro you know platforms where you get this lemons oranges Swirls, Ge splashes geos, of color. Swirls, splashes of color. Or the right, like, um, who was it? Someone you were in college with was like, when people go buy a painting for their house. It has to match the it couch. It has to match the couch. Yeah. So, yes, some of these things are very exquisitely crafted. They can be some fucking beautifully painted lemons. And I am not saying that that is not a valid art form. But those lemons don't change the world. Right. There is there's art that people buy because it matches their couch. Because it's and they aesthetic. can hang it in yes. their living room. Yes. And then there's other art that captivates you. Because it it says something about the human experience that is worth listening to. And when you talk about someone like Jodorowsky, when you talk about someone who has a passion for what they're doing. Yes, money is a part of it, but it is the smallest part of it. What is most important is what you are saying. Right. Like and I heard one guy explain it as 
the most exploratory artists are forming ideas and concepts and shaping them and putting them down in a form that the rest of us can perceive to communicate something that can't be put into words. Yes. And, and by doing that, they teach that to the rest of the culture. And eventually it gets processed and refined enough that it can be put into words. Yes. And at that point, the person who's been trained, like exposed to that their entire life, they can learn to put words to this thing that the exploratory artist of the previous generation put down. Now they can explore farther. Yeah. And it's this expanding of the collective human consciousness. Yeah, it's the pushing forward of awareness. Right. And so Jodorowsky had these this vision that he couldn't put down in a way that he could sell to somebody. Right. But that ended up inspiring generations of future artists right it pushed who the boundaries could of put it down in a way that you could sell to somebody and pass it on yes which has only inspired more artists to explore beyond that right although he went pretty fucking far i don't know <laughs> you know what i don't think jodorowsky does anything that he doesn't go hard right he goes hard or he just fucking doesn't go and I really felt that the part where he was talking about what it was like to hear that his movie wasn't going to be made was super impactful. When he was talking about what is the point of making movies if they don't say anything? What is the point of making movies if they are not art? What is the point of making movies if they are not someone's dream made manifest? He's like, what is it? Is it this? And he pulls the money out of his pocket. And, and he he's just like, has this look of disgust and he's like, on his what? face. This paper in my pocket, this paper that means nothing, that has no soul. This, this is what I'm supposed to make a movie for? Fuck off. I'm not fucking doing it. He was like, no. The whole point of a movie is that it is a dream. It is my dream. And I am putting that dream on the screen for you to see, for everyone to, to see. To change the world. I was trying to change the world. I was literally trying to create a way of communicating this spiritual message that I felt needed to be communicated. I created a team of warriors that I thought were capable of expressing that dream. And nobody wanted my dream. And I think that that's a lot to ask out of every movie, but that doesn't mean that any movie can't be that. I mean, there's a place for everything. There's a place for Caddyshack and there's a place for Mandy, right? We get the range. We really do. But don't sell me lemons when what I want is an experience, an experience, I want, I want to walk out a different person. I want you to make me think. And I want to come back to that movie when I really want to think about something. And I feel like the passion that he injected into, into his project is ultimately what pushes it into the culture. That's ultimately what acts as the, like... The substrate that gets right. it dispersed. Because it's, it's a sincere. Yeah, we love uh, sincerity. We say yeah. sincerity a lot. Sincerity is something that has a lot of meaning to both of us, which is I mean what I say and I am who I am. I'm not anyone else. I don't have the space or the time or the energy to be anyone but me. So if you've met me, you've met me. And I think sincerity means a lot and we like to see it in a movie i don't want to be lied to i don't want meaningless uh what do they call them there's a word for those like platitudes that people say deepities is it deepities but they there's sound one, profound but uh, there's one where they're like they say them because it interrupts rational thought oh yes um 
thought-terminating cliches. Yeah. I don't want a thought-terminating cliche. I don't want live, laugh, love. I don't want... Boys will be boys. I don't want any of that bullshit. I want I want That's you to say something real. What can you do when you have to work with people? Yeah. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Who is John Galt? <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that that is probably why we have a hard time swallowing so many of the movies that come out now is because they feel like a product. They feel like fast fashion. They feel like nostalgia grab something that is trying to win my affection, win my attention and win a place in the culture with cheap tricks. Right. Because they think, Oh, here's something flashy that will get your attention. Yeah. But you're not actually going to focus on it enough to notice how shallow it is. Right. I'm going to get your money. You're going to get your shallow entertainment that you feel is deeper than it actually is. And then we can all just move on to the next thing. Right. And I'm wondering if that might not be the end outcome of the writer's strike. Mm. Because if writers are getting paid more, you're going to have to invest more in every product that you create. Because right now... Writers writing scripts are a cheap commodity because they pay them so little and they expect them to churn out so much. And I watched a really interesting um, talk from this fellow who is a CG artist and he was saying that the reason it feels like CG has gone downhill is because it really, really has. Because they are far less interested in creating a quality CG product and far more interested in creating a quick CG product because the more you can pump out, the more money you make. Instead of creating a bespoke suit, you buy 50 pairs of fast fashion jeans and t-shirts. Right. That are each going to last like three times wearing it and then you throw it away. Right. You wear it once, it gets a hole, you can't fix it, you throw it away or it shrinks or whatever. Instead of the bespoke suit, which takes time, it takes craftsmanship, and it's beautiful, no matter how old it gets. Like Jurassic Park. Here's a classic example. Jurassic Park is over 20 years old. Those special effects hold the fuck up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You watch it now. They literally constructed good. a like forty five foot tall animatronic T Rex. Right. And, and they then just used CG so filled smartly. In yeah. The edges with CG. There's a couple scenes, like one or two, where you're like, hmm, okay. All right, thanks, nineties. That was cute. Right. But so many of the scenes where the dinosaurs are actually interacting with people, yeah. It's practical effects. Right. Because CG so was used so sparingly. It, it was used artistically. It's so much better executed. Yeah. yeah. There's no substitute for a suit or a puppet. For a man in a suit. For a man in yeah. a suit. Or, or a, a robot in a suit. suit. Yeah. There's just not, nothing beats animatronics. I love animatronics. I just, I, I love an animatronic puppet. We went through a... Um, uh, a haunted house? Haunted house. And they had this giant puppet on like a track on a railroad track. Um, uh, it was rails. a track on the ceiling. Yeah. No, it was rails on the floor. And he like slid out and held its arms out. And it had this whole animatronic face. It was this awesome, complicated puppet. And I stopped because I was like, look at that puppet. <laughs> and they wheeled it out at me to try to get me to go. And I was just like, watch, watch what it's doing. Because right, it's. It's kind of up, and then as it comes toward you, it swings down, yeah. and its arms open up at the same time. Yeah. So it's just kind of popping out of nowhere, and boom, getting big, fast. It was so And we cool. both just stopped, and we were like, that is so cool. Look at that puppet. And a, uh, an actor, you know, a, a worker, oh, yeah. snuck up behind me and tried to 
like jump scare me, but my auditory processing delayed ass was like, "Oh hey, did you see the puppet? <laughs> Look, that's it's so a, cool. That puppet's cool." <laughs> and uh, you know, we live in a fast world. We live in a world where it's more important to create quantity than it is to create quality. And we need constant novel stimulation. We have trained our brains to expect constant novel stimulation. And that extends to everything. We will literally take a quality cut in movies if it means we get more movies per year. Right. I saw an article the other day that was making an argument that there's not a lack of new RPG games. Yeah. Of RPGs. Um, and <laughs> RPG game games, yes. It's that we've been spoiled by the great games of the past. Yeah. Because the new games aren't, they're not, it's the same situation where it's like, more games, more quickly. It's overwhelming. I rather find it than overwhelming. fewer games, less often at higher quality. Right. I mean, yeah. Yes. And I, it's an entire culture shift that would have to happen to go back to, I get two games a year, but they're the fucking awesome games. And, you know, we've been wrestling with that because we just switched to a bi-weekly schedule for the podcast. And I'm like, man, we need to be putting out more. We need to be putting out more. I mean, we're putting out more. I'm putting out two episodes of Feast, Sheath, and Shatter. I'm putting out two episodes of Strange and Beautiful Book Club. I'm putting out a weekly episode of Come in 81 Kilo. So we're putting out a lot of episodes, but I'm like, we need to do more. And I thought, no. What if we take our time and we're creating lots of different quality things and putting them out more slowly? That's okay. It's okay. Um, you got to reject the hustle culture idea that it's got to be go, 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 more, more, more. If you aren't totally exhausted and burned out at the end of the day, are you even working? Are you even trying? Are you even trying? What What would you say it is you do here? <laughs> and I think the fact that Jodorowsky tried to create this movie and ultimately, what was created was a documentary about the attempt to create this movie. But even the documentary about a movie that never got made inspires this much philosophical discussion is a testament to what he was trying to do. And that the, the book that he made to sell the movie to the studios ended up inspiring some of the best bits in every great sci-fi movie yeah. over the last 40 years. Yes. Good job. Good Kudos. job, Alejandro. Yeah. My only nitpick about the documentary was that one guy who had a weird, he had a weird way of speaking. He needed to be subtitled. And his opening line was, one time I went to see Alejandro and he went through the book with me and he described all the scenes. So I would say I'm the only person in the world who's ever seen Jodorowsky's Dune. Get off your horse. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I read a book one time, so I would say I'm the only person in the world who's watched that movie. Um, That may be true. I'm not saying it isn't. But I'll tell you other people who have seen the movie, Alejandro Jodorowsky, H.R. Giger, Moebius, Moebius, Foss, Dan O'Bannon, everyone who worked on the movie. Oh, wait, they've all seen it, too. Yeah, yeah probably the person who's seen it more in intimately than anyone else is Jean Giraud, or Moebius. Jodorowsky himself. Or Jodorowsky himself. I just don't like the, oh, I'm the only one. I'm special. I got to see it before it was even cool. I watched it before he even bought the rights <laughs> to do. Get out of here, hipster hipster critic. You're not needed in this documentary. Who who even was he? He was like a director. And then the movie that he directed, I didn't recognize. It's probably some huge movie. And I'm like, fuck you. I don't know who you are. 
I did love that they talked to a couple of movie critics, and I wanted to know what qualified them to be the movie critics that they interviewed right? for this. Did they just like, answer the email? What? Were they like, oh, How let's email a whole bunch. How many people did they try to get? I don't know. I don't know. But the documentary was good. It, it was, was good. Yeah. And the music was it. wild. And there's more to it. He talked to more people. He got Pink Floyd signed on. Oh, yeah. Pink Floyd was going to do all of the, like, Dune Atreides music. Yeah. And then there was this, like, philosophical, like, death metal band magma called magma, magma. yeah that was gonna do all of the harkonnen music yeah he was gonna get and a i love that band. he got different bands for the different groups yeah so, so then everyone he was probably have gonna have feel. another musical group for the imperial representatives yeah if he'd gotten that and far. probably another one for the guild yeah it was good that was real. That was another interesting part. And I liked Foss the whole entire time we talked to him. He was definitely just sitting in his studio drinking a glass of maybe absinthe. I don't know what was in that glass. It's, it was like, it's a, like when you're on a video call at work. Yeah. You put your wine in the coffee cup so you can it. blow on it yeah, no, and he, pretend it's hot. But he had a glass glass. Like he, he has a short stem <laughs> glass that he's drinking out of the yeah. whole time that has some sort of obviously probably alcohol and then you look at his paintings and you're like shit those are paintings that is not a digital painting that is a painting and it is you understand why he was the pinnacle of sci-fi cover art when he was that when sci-fi cover art was at its prime he was the peak during the peak not now where everything has roses and sticks and crowns and shit. But I literally went out and hired an artist to paint this thing. And I remember when we first read The Wheel of Time, hating those covers. I hated those covers. They're not the best. And now I look at them and I'm like, oh, they're not that bad. Right. They're... I kind of like it. I don't know. As a piece of art... Yeah. They're good. Yes. They are good paintings. I think I'm just but as, I'm tired of the generic cover designs. As representatives of as a representation of what happens in the book. Hmm. Well I I can it's give fine. them slack. Every painter can't like if there's a painter that all they do is book covers, yeah, you can't expect them to deeply read, deeply and critically read every right. book that they have to. They're write a relying cover for. on the they're relying on a description given to them, right? And if it's not exactly right, they can't be blamed for that, right? Yeah, like, like all every single cover that maybe maybe some of the more recent ones don't. Every single cover for the Harry Dresden books. Give him a big, wide-brimmed hat. Yes. And he does not wear a hat. He does not wear a hat. <laughs> but it goes with the duster. <laughs> it goes with the coat, which he does wear. Yeah. But he never wears a hat in the books. It's fine. It's and fine. I feel like he put a hat on Harry for the first book. And then they just coasted Jim Butcher that. was like, okay, just go with it. It's fine. It's fine fine yeah all right well i guess we'll leave it here i'm not sure what more we can say about this right now and i'm uh, sure we will stay tuned this. over the next i don't know six months to a year for the deep dive <laughs> jodorowsky edition we'll add it to the list how about that okay right yes. after the other deep dives we have already planned sure yeah you don't even remember planning them do you oh uh I remember planning this one. I love you, honey. I love you, too. <laughs> Until next time, friends. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.